Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz. It's 2023, third week of January here. Uh, we have some big news going on, big moves on the front lines, a big show lined up. we got things going on in Serbia, things going on with Poland, things going on in the home front in America with the NHL. And uh, it's what it's the big things that finally happened, some things that we've been waiting to see have finally started to materialize, like those movement along the front line. In many ways, what some people thought Ukraine was going to be doing, Russia, in fact, is doing the opposite direction, of course. So uh, it's going to be a big show. Dimitri, how are you? I'm doing all right, Conrad. And yeah, of course, exciting developments in geopolitics as well as uh, church-related matters in the world. And, you know, we'll try to cover it all in one episode, but there is so much and so much more developing even as we speak right now this weekend. So I know it's just going to be important to get to all the issues and, of course, cover them succinctly and in detail. So let's get to it. Yeah, no, one of the biggest things we're going to, of course, talk about is the new Zaporozhye offensive by the Russians. They've made significant advancements along the, along the front line, as has been now confirmed by multiple sources, it seems that, again, uh, Zaporozhye towards Melitopol was one of the main uh, vectors of offensive that the West and the media thought that Ukraine would take, that they might make a push. But it seems that Russia, having gotten so much of Ukraine's forces diverted towards Bakhmut and the Bakhmut cauldron, they, they seem now to feel confident enough to start taking territory again down towards the south. And Zaporozhye, if they reach that city itself, would uh, perhaps be the largest city actually taken by by the Russian forces from like in their actual offensive to gain territory. Yeah, and let's not forget uh, the reason Russians want Zaporozhye is it's on the same level as Kherson. Do you recall um, uh, back when the Russians actually abandoned Kherson in October and November? Well, abandoned they call it a strategic retreat, but they let the Ukrainians take Kherson and uh, Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donetsk, and Lugansk are the four major cities which Russia actually added through its constitutional reform into the. Um, I guess they were subjects of the Russian Federation now. So officially, Zaporozhye on paper, as a legal, you know, as uh, on a, on the legal documents, it is a Russian city. So technically, Russians now treat it legally speaking as an occupied city by the Ukrainians, which is a bit weird because it was never really freed by Russia. So Zaporozhye again is is a city that Russia it needs to take. Now, the thing is, you, you might be asking, well, what about Bakhmut? Well, Bakhmut is just slightly, uh, it's about 50 kilometers north northeast of Zaporozhye. So it's a little bit off off the mark. So Russian Russians have enough forces actually to attack both cities at once. And in fact, you know, there may not even be an attack on Zaporozhye. Zaporozhye may not have the defenses. We're not quite sure what Ukrainians have prepared on that particular end. To defend Zaporozhye city, so unlike Bakhmut, which you know is turning out to be an almost two, three month long siege. Well, Zaporozhye is, I believe, been so depopulated. I believe for the before the SMO started, it was a city of seven hundred fifty thousand people, growing. Now, I believe the population is about four hundred thousand. So it's almost been cut in half since this all started. And as Dimitri said, Zaporozhye is one of the capitals of the regions that have been annexed into the and officially on paper inducted into the Russian Federation. Losing Kherson was a, even though it's not even the largest city in the region, it is, uh, it was a bit of a symbolic loss for them because they're like, oh, now we don't have the capital of this region of Russia. And Zaporozhye has never actually been under the military control of Russia, and the administrative capital has been Melitopol, which is a, also a pretty large city that didn't really seem to have much issue at all gaining, going completely under the administrative control of Russia and Russia aligned forces. But this uh, offensive is going, is coming hand in hand with, large meetings of, of relevant powers and military coming together in an organized congressional way meeting more than we've seen before because they're about to send possibly some of the largest amount of weapons and aid to Ukraine that we've seen. 
Dimitri, if you want to let us know a little bit about that. Yeah, essentially the recent um, the recent reports by the NATO press release that have been uh, quite staggering, actually, surprisingly. So so it seems that NATO is really putting its foot down and saying, look, the only way we're going to achieve a peace treaty between Ukraine and Russia, which we believe that the West actually does want to achieve, because I'm, I don't think anybody in the West... Um, at least nobody in uh, nobody in the echelons of you know, military power actually believes that Ukraine can defeat Russia. But what they can achieve is a positive, uh, well-built peace treaty. And the only way for Ukraine to achieve a peace treaty is to have leverage on Russia. And how do you get gain that leverage is to provide Ukraine with more military aid. And so just taking a look at this package here. So this is the proposed NATO package for Ukraine, which, of course, um, you may just... You know, you can double check the numbers. They will be getting updated in the coming weeks. But it is the biggest uh, lump sum, sort of, so to speak, package of arms Ukraine is receiving received to this date. Actually, so it consists of fourteen Challenger two tanks from Great Britain, really modern, high equipped tanks, a hundred modern rockets of unspecified quality, thirty SPGs, two hundred BMPs, BTRs. Um, that's from the UK, right? Then you have 200 Senator armored vehicles from Canada, 14 Leopard, uh, 14 Leopard 2 tanks from Poland, uh, 100 BMP Bradleys from the US. US is also sending 55 armored vehicles of various types, 250 BTRs from the US, uh, 100 Striker APCs. So Striker APCs from the US, there's basically not tanks, but they also, they look like tanks, but they're essentially for troop troop transportation and they drive, you know, they're armored, armored troop transport. You wouldn't use like a Jeep when there's uh, obviously shelling going on and all the shrapnel flying everywhere. So these vehicles actually have, I think they have, you know, six plus wheels and they can kind of drive off-road. So it's this sort of off-road tractor, you know, I'm just kind of describing it for the audience, but a hundred of those things. So uh, again, the US is sending 36 Six howitzers, which is uh, low to mid-range artillery. So we were talking about the high Mars and how you know they can shoot up to a hundred miles, a hundred you know up to a hundred you know one hundred and fifty kilometers long. Uh, howitzers, they're a lot, they're a lot shorter range. They just they look like standard artillery cannons, like something you'd see out of World War One or World War Two, but they're still used. I mean, US used them in Iraq and Afghanistan to they shoot essentially at uh, reinforced stationary positions of the enemy. So you know. 36 of those. So, and of course, one Patriot air defense system, uh, like a, an entire battery, is being provided for, by the US, and uh, six Nassam air defense batteries, which, again, these air defense batteries are really important for Ukraine. Now, why? Because Ukraine does not have any air superiority. Like with the Ghost of Kiev stories, those are all out the window at this point. From what we know, Ukraine has, I think, almost no functional air bases at all because Russia destroyed them all in February, March. 2022 quite early so russia has complete air superiority and how do you equalize that superiority well you actually don't allow russia to fly its planes properly over the landscape of the you know of the smo so yeah those are the things that the u.s is providing oh and last but not least nearly forgot Karana. they're providing 18 more high mars 18 so almost doubling the number of high mars to about 40 in total which which is insane. We spoke about the HIMARS a couple episodes ago. These are the extremely long-range artillery uh, units, which are very hard to destroy. So they're very hard to spot on the ground because they're always moving, and you know they're incredibly powerful. So US is providing a lot, and of course France is providing, I believe, forty uh, AMX wheel tanks, which yeah, they're a bit smaller tank model, but it's still effective. And uh, Germany is providing, and notice Germany is providing again arms for the first time. And I think this is the, probably the biggest mark on this entire NATO package is the fact that Germany, under all these international treaties since World War II, was not able to actually 
provide arms to any conflict overseas. That's why Germany did not participate in the Libyan campaign in Afghanistan, in in Syria, nor in you know, Iraq, actually. So Germany, for the first time, started providing, you know, slightly some weapons in some form, uh, which it was bound on the treaties not to provide, you know. So this is kind of a red line was crossed in a way, or at least will be crossed in the next few weeks. And uh, some more arms uh, from countries such as Sweden, Norway, uh, you know, France, and essentially, yeah, some more howitzers, cannons, and things of that sort, but nothing major. Essentially, a lot more HIMARS, a lot more tanks. And of course, you may be asking, right? Yeah, this was in the news a lot. All the Western media sources were saying, and by Western media, I mean left and right wing, they were claiming, well, why doesn't the US provide its famous Abrams tank? Well, the US said that unless Germany commits to providing Leopard 2 tanks, which are about equivalent to the Abrams, in a European sense, unless Germany commits to providing, uh, you know, a, a, a large number of Leopard 2 tanks, like Poland is, then then the US will mirror that and actually provide its famous Abrams tank, which saw so much success in Afghanistan and Iraq. So notice no Abrams tanks, but this package in itself, a Russian analyst is saying that this could actually give Ukraine this, like, you know, room to breathe because you know russians will really have to speed their things up if these if these items were in play right now russians would not be moving north into zaporozhye they would not be pushing through to bakhmut these are this is like staggeringly incredible especially the artillery that you know these nato countries are providing so i think overall this package is kind of nato is saying that look we actually do want ukraine to you know have some leverage in the conflict and you know russia deal with it you can't really stop us from providing this aid well, and it starts to almost raise the question, Russia, people have said Russia seems like they're almost eager to destroy every weapon that Europe, especially Europe, and if not even the U.S. has to the point of, I don't know, maybe they anticipate a larger conflict and they have an interest in not just demilitarizing Ukraine, but demilitarizing all of their perceived enemies. And unfortunately, everything Dmitry just read, that's basically all already, besides some of the speculative stuff at the end, that's all already going to happen 100%. And they're really trying to push this farther. This is from AZ Geopolitics. The United States expects support for the Allies' initiative to hand over F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Following a statement by the Netherlands about its readiness to consider transferring its F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, U.S. Ambassador to the OSCE Michael Carpenter said he expects broad support in the United States for such a possible Allied decision. And there's a quote there, he says everything that was basically just said, but again, this 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 isn't confirmed yet, but if this were to happen, I mean, this would be... I'm not so confident that it would have a huge change in the direction, but suddenly you'd see more footage of Ukrainian pilots launching off again and things getting shot down by, I mean, we saw what happened last time with the initial invasion of the SMO. All of the supposed atrocities committed by Russian air power and jets turned out to be uh, misfires or problems that had occurred via Ukrainian fighters. So the, the, air, the air situation was never really on their side, even at the beginning when they had planes to scramble. So... Again, and who knows who would even be piloting these? Would it really just be Ukrainians or, you know, it's probably going to be high-level military contractors or just foreign mercenaries. So this is a big deal. We're getting some big weapons. Some. Uh, it doesn't seem that the West is willing to let any of the dead already kind of, that their sacrifice stand for what it was on either side. And they're willing to, they want to triple, quadruple the amount of casualties they're seeing on both sides here. And that almost starts to raise the question of, is there are there vested interests in people like perhaps Poland or other powers that, especially as Russia's pushing again in Zaporozhye and really making it clear that they're going to be taking all the territory that they've claimed plus more at least? Is Poland has a does Poland uh, do they see it as a good thing that Ukraine is sending more and more troops east and just depopulating itself and demilitarizing itself to where maybe they think they could just take what they consider there as like Ilvov or uh, any of these other places? 
Yeah, that's right. And let's just consider the fact that, um, you know, Ukraine at this point is losing territory, at least in the last three weeks. It has been on the losing end. So in a way, you can kind of see how the, you know, the tide ebbs and flows here. Ukraine starts losing for a consistent time for the first time since, I don't know, maybe July or August. And suddenly the West is, is eager to provide a large package, all while there's a World Economic Forum meeting happening in Davos. So maybe the two things are related that NATO is coordinating with some of the elites in Davos and they're saying, look, we're willing to provide this package. But that's kind of a subject for um, to be discussed a bit later on. But anyhow, I think it's interesting that uh, some of the domestic events in the Ukraine as well are kind of um, always move to the sidelines. For example, uh, uh, Alexei Arostovich, who was the famous uh, spokesperson for Zelensky, was a, a sort of essentially a staff member of Zelensky's government, and he had probably like the largest audience on Ukrainian on the Ukrainian internet for a you know political blogger and a political commentator. And Zelensky actually invited him to serve in the government. And so, he, if you recall, a few days ago there was um, an anti-air missile of of Ukrainian make, essentially shot down a Russian. Uh, a uh, Russian missile that was headed for an electric, uh, electrical station. Now, the Russian missile, you know, it was shot out of the air, but it plummeted down and hit an apartment building, okay? So the Ukrainians shot down a Russian missile, which plummeted down, hit an apartment building in Ukraine. And actually, uh, I think it was several tens of people died. So it was, it was quite a huge tragedy. The photos were pretty horrendous. But this guy, um, this advisor to Zelensky, Aristovich, goes online and the first thing he says was, well, the question arises, well, Aristovich, can you comment on this event? This atrocity, atrocity by the Russians. And you, Aristovich says, the anti-air capacity of Ukraine had a mis- made a mistake again, similar to how, you know, early in the year they shot the, you know, they killed the two innocent civilians in Poland. Aristovich says, well, again, Ukrainian anti-air missile accidentally shot down this Russian missile over a you know civilian area. And so, you know, there are these casualties. So we're very sorry for that. So he essentially admits uh, what the Ukrainians would call the Russian narrative. And Aristovich, after that, two days after, he just signs a resignation. So the Ukraine lost its, probably its loudest voice in pro-Ukrainian social media. And now Alexander, <laughs> uh, sorry, Alexei Aristovich is now um, essentially this... Uh, persona non grata in the Ukraine, which is really bizarre because Ukraine really does cut off its own. As soon as you say something that goes against the Zelensky narrative, um, you know, you get completely ostracized, which is very interesting. Now, the other big event, of course, was about a week ago, the helicopter crash in Ukraine, which was horrendous. So essentially a helicopter was just flying over a civilian area and it ended up crashing and it had uh, some staffers from the Zelensky government as well as the Minister of Internal Affairs on board. Um, now, the helicopter actually crashed near a school and children ended up dying as well. So 14 casualties from that air helicopter crash. You know, so the civilian area, no missiles involved, neither Ukrainian nor Russian. So it just seems to be have been similar to, you know, say what took out Kobe Bryant, you know, a couple of years ago. But so just a civilian helicopter crash, so nothing you know, and of course, a minister of Ukraine died. You know, someone, a member of Zelensky's cabinet, and still, it's been a week, and no one's speaking about it anymore. So the events are moving so quickly that these deaths of important people in the Ukrainian government are simply getting sidelined and swept under the rug. We won't ever find out exactly why the helicopter crashed, why all these children had to die. You know, what was it? A was it a Russian? You know, some sort of op? Was it a Ukrainian? Uh, some sort of internal battle, maybe they're taking out their own ministers, because we have seen Ukrainians actually, you know, the SBU assassinating, interrogating, like, you know, there have been political assassinations in the Ukraine in the last 12 months. So, you know, is there something of this sort going on here? But I guess we'll never find out why, because there are at least 
double if not triple digits of Ukrainian soldiers dying on the front lines every day. And so the death of an internal minister or even, you know, uh, 14 people or even children is at this point for the Ukrainians not even, you know, it's not even an interesting talking point at this point because so many troops are actually dying on the front lines in Bakhmut under Zaporozhye. It's it's really that intense. And so, yeah, very interesting uh, events occurring in Ukrainian domestic affairs, I suppose. And yeah, it's stuff just keeps getting a lot wilder over there. Well, and I think there's pretty good evidence that it was entirely a internal Ukrainian struggle with that helicopter crash. Because I mean, the two options were, they're not claiming anything that much. I'm not seeing that much noise about it being the Russians. So it was either Ukrainian air defense or that French helicopter. I think that's known to actually have issues, had a had another issue, but it seems to be one of France's big air exports, so I don't think they'd be interested in having its reputation harnessed as much as it is. But I think, uh, yeah, we've talked a lot. I'm curious, Dimitri, what do you think about, again, as the Zaporozhye kind again, Russia's, it's not like Russians, it's not like they did a mega parachute operation and stormed Zaporozhye city. That has, nothing like that has happened. It's just a, the largest kind of lo- elongated steady push of multiple kilometers across the front line that we've seen in a long time. And so I guess I got to ask Dimitri, what do you think uh, is the? Do you think this is the main piece focus? Do you think this is another redirection? Do you think there will be a strike on Kiev? Do you think? Do you think there may be a? How long do you think of a timeline we'd be away from a possible push to Odessa? We know that keeps getting pushed out because the war timeline in general keeps getting pushed out. I'm curious about your thoughts. Well, I think timeline wise, look, uh, Russia may actually strike at Zaporozhye before the end of winter, which, you know, according to our calculations, there wouldn't be an, you know, a major push before maybe the end of February, March. So before the, you know, the snow starts falling and whatnot. But if, if Russia does notice a weakness in the Ukrainian lines, especially with this military package from NATO not arriving, they may want to actually take Zaporozhye before that package arrives, before the 18 high Mars, before the howitzers, before all the, ta- you know, hundreds of tanks, essentially, before Ukraine gains all of those assets. Russia may be willing to actually push with Zaporozhye just at least to gain a sort of moral victory so the conflict can continue deep into 2023. But as we're looking at it now, Zaporozhye will be a true test of Russia. Like Zaporozhye is a much larger city than Mariupol was. Then um, it's about it's even larger than uh, Kherson actually, and Kherson was taken relatively bloodlessly. The Ukrainians really didn't defend it that much, which you know it was surprising because Russians essentially blitzkrieged it, and uh, so there is that consideration there. So. Zaporozhye will be a test. Can the Russians actually siege a city which the Ukrainians have held the entire time uh, effectively? Because we're, we're watching Mariupol and Bakhmut take place, and Solodar is, you know, Solodar is a very small town. Zaporozhye is 700 times the size of Solodar. So it's not really a comparison. Not seven, you know, it's not really a comparison here. So if Russians can take Zaporozhye relatively, you know, steadily, you know, street to street or whatnot, somehow sweep it, take care of all the Ukrainian resistance forces. And it'll be interesting if Ukrainians can hold Zaporozhye too. So I'm just not just speaking from a Russian perspective. If the Ukrainians can actually hold Zaporozhye in a relatively humane way without leveling the entire city, without holding civilians hostage, it'll be a big moral marker for the Ukrainian side. And of course, where does this all lead? Well, I think the next step will probably not even be Kiev, unless Russians really want to go for some sort of like arrow strike right for the heart, right for the head of the dragon. But it have to, it will have to be Kharkov, which Kharkov has been the, so to speak, the as you'd say in Russian, like a bloodstorm, like the like the base of of, of events from where Ukrainians would be were sending all of the military. Uh, I guess all the strikes against the Russian territory to the northeast all came from Kharkov. So Kharkov. And Kharkov is even larger than Zaporozhye, second largest city in Ukraine. So 
Kharkov is the big test. If Russians can take Zaporozhye, then that means, well, hey, look, Russians can actually siege a modern city without, you know, completely depopulating it to the point where, you know, it needs to all be rebuilt. Maybe Ukrainians will surrender Zaporozhye, which means, hey, Russians will say, well, maybe this is our time to actually go into Kharkov again for a second time since March 2022. You know, I think it's uh, Zaporozhye, we may actually see a move into there before these before these NATO weapons arrive. So, Maybe NATO has essentially sped up Russia's consideration of how quickly these things need to happen. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's not not worth actually waiting for the winter to be over. And we're going to be watching it closely, of course, and be sure to follow us on Telegram and Twitter to stay up to date on on the latest. You know, we're always on there. But yeah, I think with that, this is a good way to transition into Patriarch Kirill made had a, had a very a very interesting sermon, and it's been going around everywhere where he said, you know, any attempt to destroy Russia will result in in the end of the world. And of course, people are always the first to discuss this in the sense of nuclear war, and everyone's always fear mongering about that. But we, of course, here at World War Now, have a much have a bit of a have what we consider a deeper perspective that would ultimately line up more with what what Patriarch Kirill was really saying. Yeah, that's right. So Patriarch Kirill's sermon, he essentially, um, you know, he says the following words, right? He says, you know, we're going to pray for world peace and we pray for the Holy Church's God about the union of all, which is what Orthodox people pray for at every liturgy. But he also says, you know, today we know there are very big threats to the world, to our country, to the entire human race, because some crazy people have the idea that the great Russian power, which has powerful weapons, is is inhabited by very strong people and they who who don't surrender to the to any enemies and over centuries haven't surrendered and they simply need to be controlled and taken control of. So he's, Patrick Kirill essentially is calling out the globalists right here. Also, you know, the globalists or whomever you may consider as the folks who run the world. And uh, he does, he does mention that Russia will never submit to any of these global powers and that he says, we believe that the Lord will not leave the Russian land. The Lord will not leave our authorities, our pres, our Orthodox president and our army. Russia will have enough strength, if necessary, to protect its land and its people. But God forbid that things do not come down to a showdown, because the Lord reconciles everything. So Petra Kirill here, he's basically calling President Putin Orthodox, which remember at the beginning of the conflict, there were all these stories coming up, people saying, well, Putin's not really a Christian, like, how can you guys support this? So, you know, how People were saying maybe the church wasn't getting behind Putin, but you know, clearly the Russian Orthodox Church does see eye to eye, especially with the recent persecutions in Ukraine, which I think, Conrad, you, you, we fully understand here that, look, we've covered it for months now. It was coming. We've covered it from the beginning when it was simply, you know, a few priests getting harassed, a few monks getting, you know, you know, accidentally hit by Ukrainian artillery. Now it's moved to the point where entire churches are captured, monasteries, people are persecuted. Even, you know, clergy was killed in the church itself. So, look, there's horrible events happening. And Patriarch Kirill is saying, look, well, if you, you if the Ukrainian government's going to act like this, it's such a, such a piggish, uh, pagan way, I am actually going to side with Putin, with his government, and I am going to pray for them and support them because, hey, look, it's not a gray area anymore. There's There's black and there's white. There's good and there's evil at this point at least this is the you know this is the chessboard which god has laid out for us and we have to side with one particular power here i think there's no question about that well i just think in many ways if you're again there's there's all sorts of people that can kind of weasel their way out of the conviction on the position of people oh i have ukrainian family i'm in you know these canadian ukrainians have very strong opinions on the schism situation but i just don't see how any of this is defensible from an ecclesiological perspective from the from constantinople as well as just from a moral perspective on the ground like we're seeing again and patriarch Kirill had already made it clear that you know don't take be sure to take basically all the exactitude of the statements that Metropolitan and Ufri and the canonical church are making with a grain of salt because they're in 
complete persecution. And they've tried to, and that, that comes in, a, in light of statements that Metropolitan and three and others have made that, you know, anti-Russian statements or like you're invading us and calling them that kind of thing. Well, of course they have to do that. If they don't do that, they're going to get thrown in prison and the speed and the speed at which their property is confiscated will just be expedited. So it's, it's very important to recognize that and don't, you know, condemn those in Ukraine who are just doing, doing everything they can to keep their flocks and just worship God and not get involved and, you know, not have to think about all the stuff that we try to bring you guys here on this show. It's an easier way to kind of understand. So I think in many ways, obviously, Patriarch Kirill is aware of the prophecies and the prophecies that we've talked about on this show and what, what what has kind of come to pass ever since this has started. I mean, of course, he's read St. Lawrence of Chernigov. Why wouldn't he have? Yeah, that's right. And not just St. Lawrence. I think uh, Patriarch Kirill is aware of like pretty much all the Russian elders and all the things they've said about you know how Russia would rise up if it stays, remains pious. And he's trying to signal that piety and bring that grace actually to Russian politics, which is why Patriot Kirill, you've seen him around all these Russian politicians and meeting with Lavrov and even Lukashenko, like visiting all these great big characters in the Russian world sphere. I, you know, I can say it clearly because unless you bring grace to these people and bless them and actually show lead by example, there, there won't be a Russian world. There won't be this Orthodox revival. And this is not St. John Kronstadt like spoke about this, right? For the for Russia to be rebuilt anew based on its old model, there needs to be actual work. You cannot, you know, you know, be becoming like God, you know, theosis is a synchronistic process, right? You have to work towards and even in the earthly matters, you know, we can't just wait for things to happen, right? You have to actually participate actively in the world. And that's what I think Petro Kirill is doing. And these sermons like you know, they're so um black and white, there's no even you can't even dispute the words and say, Well, you're reading out of context. No, he's Speaking very clearly, and of course, Petro Kirill is sometimes called the Russian Chrysostom because he's just so eloquent at the way he, you know, gives puts forward a message, and that's why he became patriarch. I think in many ways, even when he was a metropolitan, he was the foreign advisor to the Russian Church. He actually knew how to speak so well. You know, he was whenever delegates would come to him, he would always give very good speeches, and he'd be good at making friends. He's a great socializer. So let's not forget that. Um, so anything you see of Patriarch Kirill participating with politicians, that's I think the that's the goal behind it all. It's not wealth. It's literally improving improving these people in their christian lives and by these people i mean people in power you know around the world and if possible Petro kill would probably meet with zelensky too and you know kind of give him advice as well but zelensky isn't interested as he's shown over the last several years he's not interested in russian orthodoxy in christianity in general he's interested in other things this guy's an actor and a clown so that's the difference between him and putin and even someone like lukashenko who isn't uh on paper a christian so let's just remember that and just the last thing of course the sermon does bring up the subject of the second thessalonians 2 6 the letter of saint paul which mentions the restrainer against the antichrist this is probably the greatest um uh prophetic you know prophetic tradition we have speaking about you know the roman empire and the roman emperor holding you know the empire led by an emperor holding back the you know, evil and the antichrist and you may say well i've read second thessalonians 2 6 as a protestant or as a catholic or even as an orthodox person what are you talking about what roman emperor well if you look at the earliest christians such as you know even even the famous heretic Tertullian, moving on to even the great saints like saint john of you know, St. John of Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom, these these saints, as well as all the Russian saints later on, and all and some even some of the Greek saints, they've all interpreted 2 Thessalonians 2.6 as, as the verse which speaks about the Roman Empire holding back the Antichrist. And God actually, 
allowing them to do that. So, and you may say, well, what does Russia have to do with Rome? And does Patriarch Kirill even understand this exegesis? Yes, he does, because, <laughs> well, guess what? Metropolitan, uh, sorry, the, the millionaire uh, Konstantin Malafeyev has been speaking about this idea for about the last six years, and he's one of the main donors to the Orthodox Church. He's been speaking about this role of uh, Second Thessalonians and Russia's destiny and its prophetic tradition. And Alexander Dugan, of course, has been speaking about this for 15 years, and as we recalled from the passing of his daughter, the Patriarch is very familiar with Alexander Dugan. You know, he sent him his condolences, and they're actually friends now, and you know, Dugan is a mainstream Orthodox guy now, surprisingly, <laughs> After all these years of being somewhere on the fringes, he is in the mainstream. And maybe uh, you know, the death of his daughter was a sort of catalyst to bring people to, you know, maybe look at him a bit more seriously in the Russian, in the Russian world, so to speak. And of course, this idea of two Thessalonians two six kind of being. Um, an example by which Russia should function. I think Russian saints throughout history have cemented that. So if you just want to look at good exegesis for that particular verse and how it relates to Russia, just read St. John Chrysostom's exegesis, which I think by any stretch, St. John Chrysostom's exegesis on any letter of Apostle Paul is considered the golden standard, right? And of course, uh, St. Theophan the Recluse, the Russian bishop of the 19th century, his exegesis essentially doubles down on what St. John of St. John Chrysostom says, and you know, it kind of cements that idea that look, the Russian Empire, Russia as this big imperial power being led, being like the personification of the empire, being led like a family, being led by a father, the emperor, right, the Russian emperor, the Tsar, leading Russia is this thing, the restrainer, which Apostle Paul speaks about here. Right, and this is the, I guess, the duty that Russia has carried over from the Roman Empire, which you know, the Apostle Paul never lived in Russia, but he lived in the Roman Empire, and so, yep, that was his designation for the Roman Empire, and of course, not just his, but God Himself through Apostle Paul has already marked that out. So that's what Patriarch Kirill essentially is alluding to here by saying that look, if the world powers, if the globalists do want to destroy Russia, they're going to have to face this reality that the Antichrist will come and the world will end. You know, it sounds apocalyptic because it is. It's eschatological, it is prophetic, it is patriarchal alluding and also informing the elites that, yes, we know your plan, we're ready to stand up, we're not surrendering. And also, if you guys really do want to take things to their logical conclusion, yeah, look, we understand that, we're okay with that. Oh, and the role of, of the restrainer, this is an idea that, again, sure, there's no emperor right now in Russia, but whether it's the person that comes after Putin or the person that comes after the person that comes after Putin, the question of restoring the empire is only going to come more and more relevant and become more to the forefront in Russian political space. Because again, we're, we have, we've had exactly one with a brief hiatus of Medvedev, actual what you could call post-Soviet leader, you could say in Putin. And no, no semblance of succession or re, like, it's hard to say what exactly what political system Russia is. Most people just alienate and say, it's, oh, it's oligarchic fascist, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's actually, it's developing. It's it's getting made right now. Like civilization is returning to Russia. And there's other prophecies that come when that have, we've, of course, talked about the future possibility of Russia liberating Constantinople. And in many ways, that prophecy comes as a precursor to another restrainer arising, the Marble King, which we've talked about before. St. Joseph the Hezekast talked about this, told his followers extensively about about this marble king. Many say it's John Vitatsis, who was a king of Nicaea from the 1200s. And that some say that his, that he is, he's marble. He's a stone king that will, that will kind of resurrect that he's, he was, he was his, his, uh, his relics are almost perfectly incorrupt so that he'll be able to, when, when God says, he'll be able to stand up and fight against the forces of antichrist and the forces of pre antichrist. And 
Joseph the Hezekiah's followers have said that the, he's this king is in secret and there's nuns, I believe, that are caring for him and that the prophecy say that when his sword leaves the sheath, then that's when that's when it'll all begin. And some say the sword is very, very close to coming out of the sheath. Again, that's take with that what you will, but we, we, we all find that very interesting. But the restrainer and Russia, it's, it's clearly these, these talking points are coming more and more to the fore. And hopefully as as this military thing can, increases, and unfortunately it seems that it's much more likely that we take see this thing through to the next level of engagement with NATO as opposed to any kind of cool down, that that will in turn revive the, the penance and the spirituality and the spirit of repentance within Russia itself so that they can adequately support such a such a restrainer. But with the subject of the Russian church and standing against the world, we know that many Russian bishops have, have vocally stood against the WEF and just general globalism, technocratic capitalism. Unfortunately, one of our one of the main allies of Russia, Serbia, their president has been at Davos. He was he's seen there today when we're recording this Saturday, January twenty first. And he, uh, along with being at Davos, of course, he decided that he's going to publicly say that not only will Crimea be returned to Ukraine along with everywhere else, but they're also now sending humanitarian aid so to explicitly to Ukraine against Russia. So it seems that the Serbs have, the noose has been tightened on them a little bit, and or Vucic has really sees the EU as his only political path forward as a politician. Yeah, and of course, no offense to Vucic, but um, I have designated him not the coast of Kiev, but the cuck of Kosovo, because, look, it's just <laughs> the idea that, you know, you not only, uh, you know, signal against Russia in such a way, as it, you know, just in, in terms of international rela- relations rhetoric, you know, Russia has made offensive statements towards Serbia once before, not just Russia, but Maria Zaharova has called Vucic uh, a hoe openly like in a press conference she called Vucic his she said oh why does he sit cross-legged is he a is he a thought or something like that she actually just like spit it out on her Instagram and of course uh, you know she had to delete it and apologize later this was maybe five years ago <laughs> but very interesting sort of rhetoric but Maria Zaharova is still by the way the main spokesman of Lavrov and she's still in power in Russia as the main foreign relations spokesperson but besides the point Vucic essentially goes against the grain here. He betrays not just the Serbian ideal of, hey, we're going to stand up with Russia regarding uh, you know anything it does. We're always going to support it in a soft form, at least verbally. Here, Vujic says, no, Crimea, as Conrad just passed on, he said, Crimea, Donbass, they belong to Ukraine. And on top of that, we're going to send humanitarian aid to aid the electrical stations in Ukraine. Uh, mind you, some military aid, so you know, can't be that bad, but still humanitarian aid to actually uh, reform and fix the electrical stations, which Russia is spending uh, lives as well as uh, its military budget on destroying. So Russia is trying to bring Ukraine to a peace treaty, to a halt, to a stand, you know, trying to bring them to reason by you know, taking down the electrical grids. And Serbia is saying, hey, we're going to um, give resources and fix these electrical stations you guys are bombing every single day. It's like... Okay, uh, I'm not sure how how weird and bad like your uh, foreign political understanding needs to be for Vucic to actually make these statements. But you're right, Conrad. Unless at Davos he's actually doubling down on the idea that look, Serbia needs to become a member of this civilized Western world, this World Economic Forum society, maybe even a member of the EU. Maybe he can fast track. Maybe Vucic can get a ticket to uh, you know Willy Wonka's uh, you know chocolate factory. Well, and this all comes in the aftermath of all of that escal- escalation in Kosovo and the rhetoric along the border and Vucic, you know, flying helicopters over and threatening and, and of course, boldly asking NATO for permission to send his troops in as as the cuck of Kosovo would do. But, of course, 
Serbia has always viewed the EU as one of its main political futures, despite in many ways having a lot of anti-EU voices within it. Ever since the, of course, separation of Kosovo in the 90s, but even more importantly, the the cutting off of Serbia from Montenegro, Serbia, despite being what's supposed to be the largest economy, the largest industrial base, the largest population, the largest language center and cultural and religious center, Serbia is now this landlocked country that has no way to compete with the tourist markets of Croatia and Montenegro specifically, as well as even Albania with its super long coastline. So, And of course, the trade disadvantages that come with being completely landlocked. And for those that don't know, the referendum for Montenegrin independence was a total sham. It only passed by less than 0.5%, and they were bussing in Albanians just to shift the vote. So when it comes to, to Serbia, they've, they perhaps see the EU as their lifeline after being totally destroyed and landlocked. But why would you uh, why would you join forces with the people that did that to you is my question and of course you see a lot of anger especially from serbian orthodox people that have want nothing to do with this they know that this will just lead to nothing more than more belgrade pride parades like we saw last year that had a lot of violence which was epic and based of course that they that the serbs stood up and took turned turned sodomy around and made them run made them, made them run and hide which was uh, it was nice to see but unfortunately serbia one of the only uh one of Russia's stronger allies and, and whatnot throughout history, they seem to have forgotten their their close ties, which maybe we'll see regime change in Serbia. Maybe this will be so bad for Vucic. But between Vucic and their lesbian prime minister, they um, they need to do a little better over there. Yeah, so the WEF is essentially denouncing, uh, um, you know, denouncing Russia. You know, in most of its meetings were about providing aid to Ukraine, inviting Olyona Zelensky, the wife of Zelensky, actually to speak at Davos. And, um, you know, all of these events... They've kind of put themselves in stark opposition to Russia. Also notice the lack of Russian politicians, Russian uh, businessmen actually at Davos WF. It's almost as if Putin, as well as the Russian church, has kind of isolated all the Russian rich folks from participating in these degenerate gatherings, which is maybe to their spiritual benefit, you know, not you know, not purchasing all those expensive prostitutes which are flying into Davos and Switzerland and whatever to uh, you know, not having these eyes wide eyes wide shut parties like this needs to be considered. So naturally um I would say that this is a big win for the church. Actually the first year I think when the Russian church has openly denounced globalism in its entirety and of course even called out the events. These are huge changes and we're excited to be here of course and you know listen and watch it all in mainstream and kind of watching it all live on mainstream media is exciting. Well, let's also not forget there's even deeper currents and many of the people at the WEF, especially, you know, Pfizer CEO, Robert Burla, Albert Burla, you know, some other people that are there, the media executives, they've got some other things in common, you know, religious wise and, and whatnot. So let's don't be afraid to ever dig deeper when you when you're faced with the face of globalism. And I saw that video, you know, Robert Burla avoiding the press when asked if he knew that the vaccines were not effective. And he, you know, ran there's video of the head of NBC, like saying he was going to punch out someone for just asking him a basic question while he was sitting outside smoking a cigarette. But but yeah, no, a shocking number of, you know, even quote unquote based leaders, you know, they're showing up to the WEF. So, you know, don't, don't, don't fall for, don't fall for the suit and tie and the, and the nice words. You know, you gotta, you gotta see where the people's loyalty really lie. But when it comes to international organizations, multinational treaties, all these sorts of things, stuff's picking up with NATO and their future possibility of membership for Sweden and Finland. Turkey, of course, is one of the main neutral parties, I guess that you could say within NATO that's negotiating prisoner exchanges. They're doing the whole gas hub thing with Russia. Erdogan, of course, is running in a tight election, and he's trying to simultaneously not seem too pro-Russian, but also leverage the fact that most Turks would rather be friends with Russia than be friends with a lot of the West. So it's it's kind of a hard tightrope game that he has to walk. But 
in Sweden recently, an activist who has, I believe, done this in Denmark and other countries. Um, forgetting his name, he's a anti-Islam activist in the Scandinavian countries, and he received a permit that Sweden granted him to burn a Quran right next to the Turkish embassy. And again, Turkey, not the most Islamic country necessarily, it's very secular, but they have a lot of Muslims, especially immigrants into Europe, Turkish Muslims. And so now there's all sorts of counter-protests. This will probably just be used as another reason for Turkey to cite, not let Sweden into NATO, that and all the PKK, uh, Kurdish terrorism stuff. And those attacks have only increased. There's also been other terrorist attacks within Kurdistan by pro-Erdogan groups. So it's uh, it's getting a bit tight in uh, and, and uh, hot in Turkey with the political situation there. The election is until the summer. So there's a whole lot more drama that could go down. We're going to be keeping a close eye on that. But this prisoner exchange that recently happened uh, between Russia and Ukraine with the mediation of Turkey was, I believe, the largest prisoner exchange that's happened since the war. Am I correct on that, Dimitri? Yeah, that's right. It, it is the largest exchange. And, you know, the uh, the second largest exchange actually took place in September. So um, if you recall, the mobilization began on the 21st of September and um, a few, perhaps a week afterwards, towards the end of September, there was that famous Medvedchuk, the Ukrainian politician who was pro-Russian, exchanging him for about 200 fighters of Azov from Mariupol. So there was that weird exchange which brought so much negativity to the Russian press about uh, President Putin's decisions, as well as Medvedchuk. And Medvedchuk is considered a loser because, well, essentially he didn't prevent the war from occurring. That was his, I guess, technically mission uh, in Ukraine. But Medvedchuk, more about him later. He's still um, he's still around, so he's not. Uh, he's definitely not left us, and I'm sure we'll speak about him in future episodes. But it has been the largest military, I mean, proposed exchange at the moment. So they're essentially exchanging 800 Ukrainian military POWs for 200 Russian POWs. Which notice the four to one ratio right here, 800 for 200, right? Definitely the Russians benefit. But what this does say also is finally, you know, on the on the on the face of it, they're admitting that look. Ukrainians have less Russian prisoners than the U Russians have Ukrainian prisoners. And what this means is, hey, maybe the actual losses are not what, you know, sources online are exaggerating in them to be. For example, Ukraine, people are claiming Ukraine's lost somewhat less, if not equal to what Russia has lost over the war. And that's simply not being the truth. You know, that's not that's not based in reality. Ukraine, if anything, has lost close to, you know, in the hundreds of thousands at this point, which is horrible and scary. But yes, that's the reality. And Meanwhile, we have these pro-Western, pro-Ukrainian sources claiming, no, Ukraine has lost, you know, about equal to what Russia has. If that's the case, why is Turkey, why is the Turkish Ombudsman actually organizing an exchange with only 200 Russian prisoners for 800? Clearly, there is a certain ratio differentiation here. And maybe I think this is kind of like, uh, you know, in the small in the small print, so to speak, the reality is kind of in this exchange, the reality of not just the, how many prisoners each side has, but also what the losses are for you know, the entirety of the war. No, it's getting really bad for Ukraine. We see more and more, like, the conscription is getting more intense, more forced, more coercive, more just the soldiers are everywhere recruiting from Lviv to Kharkov to the southern part of the front line. Like, it's they're dragging everybody out there. And like you said, like, Zaporozhye's gone from 750,000 to 400,000 people. People are getting the heck out of Dodge. And I think as that goes on, that's only going to serve to allow the Russians ultimately to take more and more territory with ease as opposed to having to perhaps liberate entire settlements all the time. I think the Ukrainians are going to be forced to take more strategic retreats, take more strategic losses of territory, cut their losses where they know they actually have less uh, institutional support and less on-the-ground support from the civilians and the civilian government. And 
so I think we're going to see more and more of that as both the Zaporozhia early kind of mini-offensive from Russia continues, as well as the increase in aid happens combined with the loss of Ukrainian soldiers. It seems that they're going to be forced to consolidate perhaps some of their new toys as opposed to spread themselves so thin. And they've spread themselves thin enough to where Russia feels confident enough to strike from the southern underbelly. But with all of that, I think we need to move on to a few other things. I talked about the possibility of Poland coming in and taking, we've talked a lot about them taking the western part and, you know, almost benefiting from some of this depopulation. They, of course, have a benefit, have a reason to do that because they need to get all those Ukrainian refugees out of Poland. There's extreme social unrest occurring and people getting really unhappy with the Polish government for letting, you know, the Poles stood so strong against, you know, foreign refugees, Islamic invasion and everything. And that's not to say that the pro- the problems that come with mass immigration entirely cease to exist just because the people are, you know, maybe Christian and, and, and European, because this, this amount of people in such a short amount of time is going to cause shocks. And so they're going to, Poland would probably feel the need to take that territory, create sort of a Poland a Ukrainian autonomous zone kind of within Poland that they can control the flow of people in the border and get a bunch of people back. You even see Poles talking, Polish politicians talking about uh, mobilizing Ukrainian refugees, like doing a conscription for the people in Poland of Ukrainian descent that have fled and then sending them into Russia to fight because they're like, we got to like, it's, it's kind of based in a way from the Poles, but it's just, it's a bit also, um, it's a bit comical as well, I guess you could say, if it wasn't also so sad. Yeah, that's right. I think Poland's kind of really expressing its, uh, you know, distrust of all these Eastern refugees. And of course, this kind of fires in, into the uh, uh, discourse of, you know, a, a lot of white nationalists and white, you know, pe- people, uh, you know, of Polish and national sort of uh, background. They have been saying that, look, we don't want Middle Eastern refugees. We want Eastern or European refugees. Well, now, you know, you have all the immigration and refugees you you can want. Here you go. And look, what can you actually do with them? Like, it's, it's for frankly, it's, it's like, yes, you're getting actually pure Aryan stock coming into your nation. But even that, you know, you can't technically handle because, look, you don't have the infrastructure on one hand. So there's that consideration, too. I think that's also a bit funny. Uh, and, you know, Poland, of course, is... Um, I'm not too sure how to even comment on the LGBT battalion that they're forming, or at least that particular military. Because frankly, look, Poland, we've been saying, everyone's been claiming for years that Poland is this hub of being, you know, it's this base country, it's banned abortion. And then suddenly, kind of like, it's maybe it's similar to Serbia, where it's like, well, you just have to lick the boots of the master. Like, you know, the master orders something, a pause to occur. And yes, you have to kind of, uh, you know, give heedance and, you know, provide tribute. Well, Poland is like, we're the most base country. We hate the EU. You're sanctioning us. We have nothing to do with you. By the way, we're going to do everything in our power to foment a war between you and the traditional country to our east, and we're going to be on the side of those of those sodomites till the end. That's basically the perspective of Poland. Like all this, all these refugees that are there come because they rattled the saber, rattled the saber harder than anybody else for this war to occur, and now it's happening, and they're having to deal with the consequences. And maybe it'll work out for them, and they'll gain some territory. But there's also a chance that uh, it, c- it could go really sideways for them because they do still economically somewhat benefit from the EU. So if that whole project collapses, Poland's going to be tucked between a rock and a hard place because they still have a lot of economic problems of their own. And they're not being smart like Hungary and shoring up a back door with an alliance and friendship with Russia. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, speaking of the, uh, you know, the LGBTQ agenda and, you know, their sort of movement in the world, like there is that story 
from the US, of course, the National Hockey League, Ivan Provorov and his great showing of, you know, not actually agreeing to put on the LGBTQ gay flag jersey for the for the poorest particular game and his reason cited while he says, I'm an Orthodox Christian, I stand by my values, I'm not going to put on the LGBTQ shirt, I'm not going to sacrifice to the idols of, you know, modernity, essentially, or even post-modernity. And I think that's quite striking. And for, as an American, as someone in the in the West, I think, Conrad, you would probably appreciate that greatly, that, look, we even have sportsmen, businessmen, people standing up against this dominant ideology, which, you know, knows no wrong, apparently, in the face of the mainstream media. Well, you know, Philadelphia, you know, even though the, I give some credit to the very progressive, I believe it was the manager, the owner of the Flyers who allowed Provorov to actually, you know, not put on the butt sex jersey. So I respect him for that, you know, being a true liberal, allowing people to actually, everyone to actually express themselves. But it shows you the NHL hockey, it's a much more homogenous sport. It's much more white. It's much more Christian. It's much more actually working class, like a lot of hockey players from Canada, even from Scandinavia, Russia. These are these are just kids that were just good at sports early on growing up and got into hockey. And it's and it's the biggest, of course, in the U.S. to play professionally, followed, of course, by Russia as the second largest, I believe, professional hockey league where people can play. And it's not just Provorov who's a kind of shirked the cultural zeitgeist. A player for the Tampa Bay Lightning, which are a very good hockey team, he's the goaltender, actually, Andrei Vasilyevsky. He, I believe, had been questioned about the Ukrainian SMO, and he refused to disavow Russia. He refused to, you know, say anything negative about his homeland. So we've got some of the most based, you know, cultural public figures in the West that are, I'm sure, facing extreme Russophobic and Christophobic hatred, but are refusing to bend the knee to, and it just shows you, again, I doubt Provorov is some hyper-based you know, pious Orthodox man compared to some people you might know at your parish, but it shows you the power of of having Orthodox parents, Orthodox grandparents, a culture that's praying for you behind you, something to really stand for, that even though you yourself may have your struggles and your and, and your doubts, you are you know that you're able to stand strong for the truth because the people around you have incarnated Christ for you. I think it's it's really important to remember that. Yeah, so in a way, just as all humans are icons of God and of Christ, and of course Christians even more so, Provorov is this like icon of like essentially this icon of martyrdom in the modern world. Like, how do you stand up to this uh, to this degenerate? I guess liberal uh liberal pagan uh, idol that is you know kind of encroaching on our culture and that's he's giving an example like he he just you had that's how you do it you openly denounce all these things that you know they claim to be valuable when they approach you with propositions you know oh, can you do this for us can you do this favor can you put on this jersey it has a symbol don't worry about it it won't affect your faith no you say no no you will i hold my spirituality higher than the wealth of the world and so uh, again, a great I- icon of Christ, right there, Provorov. So, uh, kudos to him. And of course, uh, let's not let's not forget the fact that you know this also exposes the National Hockey League in general. At least the top the top levels, like we saw all those press conferences with, you know, all the uh, commentators, um, the post post game commentators who were saying, well, Provorov, you know, he should probably. I mean, this is an absurd clip which is going around Twitter right now. You're probably not too late to catch it once the episode airs, but do definitely search up National Hockey League reaction to Ivan Provorov, and you'll just get this clip where these commentators are sitting there. And uh, they're basically claiming, look, if Provorov really doesn't like gay rights and gay values and LGBTQ, maybe he should go to Russia and actually fight for the values which he supports in the trenches. So they're basically saying Provorov, who is a professional sportsman, probably never served in the military. They're saying, okay, look, you don't agree with the LGBTQ LGBTQ agenda and the, um, you know, the current uh, domain, this current setting of things, then you should go to Russia and actually die in the war or something like that. You should just go and fight. Like it's, it's so in your face there. You know, you have to be, you have to 
kind of be in allegiance with this ideology or else, you know, or else you're rejected out of society itself. That's the signal they're kind of sending to us. It's, it's really bizarre on one hand. On the other hand, so utterly predictable. Well, it's it's pretty insane because Provorov literally moved to the United States when he was 13. And if you listen to him speak, he literally has an American accent. So this idea that he needs to go back and fight for Russia, I thought we were against that kind of xenophobic, like, on Twitter, when I tell some Mexican who's protesting the school uniform policy of school in Idaho, and I tell them to go back to their own damn country, suddenly I'm a xenophobe. But this person can get on TV and tell someone who didn't want to wear a sodomy jersey that they need to go and fight in some war across the world. That's not xenophobic at all. It's it, it's it's beyond belief. But it's a good win for the city of Philadelphia. Uh, I love... I've always loved the Philadelphia Flyers jerseys. Because of that, I like if they're not playing on a team that I like, like the Dallas Stars or the Washington Capitals, I would root for the Flyers because I always just thought their jerseys were so cool. And now, of course, all the Provorov jerseys have completely sold out. Based Christians have made it clear. The media may, may shit on him, but we are going to show with our dollars, support him. And those jerseys, I say, they're drips. So if you want to, I'd wait for them to restock and buy one myself. And not only that, but let's not forget that during the Black Lives Matter riots. The only place where urban whites, urban ethnic whites stood up was in Fishtown, Philadelphia. If you remember those videos, of just those kind of working class, a lot of them were Italians, you know, maybe I think some old Poles even. They were just roaming the streets with baseball bats, making sure there was no no riots going on in, on in Fishtown from BLM. And of course, North Philly is a known, uh, is basically the black ethno state and it's a very violent place. So so, so kudos to those guys. Big, big ups to uh, the city of brotherly love, despite the fact that I have visited there and I not a place I want to live, but a good place to visit. Let's put it that way. Yeah, let's. And of course, probably the most absurd reaction from a so-called Orthodox theologian Aristotle Aristotle Papa Nicolau from uh, from, <laughs> uh, from Fordham University. Like we can't we can't not speak about this. Of course, unfortunately. So the, the great he is a representative of the Greek theologian from the Greek Orthodox Church of America. Probably the most. Uh, corrupt orthodox jurisdiction in the entire world in terms of actually being infiltrated by foreign agents cia agents things of this nature and so aristotle this greek theologian right this guy is something else right he essentially is writes an nbc nbc news article reacting as an orthodox person to ivan proper of another orthodox person how you know to the you know, lgbtq jersey situation and aristotle writes well he says uh you know essentially he says well ivan Provorov is um the fact that he doesn't put on the jersey perhaps his family is being held hostage in russia perhaps he's under the influence of patriarchal he switches it on its head instead of saying yes orthodox christians do not believe in these lgbtq values aristotle writes well you don't understand um ivan's situation here he uh, he may be, you know, blackmailed by the Russian government, by the KGB, the FSB. He just turns it into a James Bond novel. And it kind of, instead of, of course, agreeing with the fact that, yes, maybe Ivan Provorov is correct here. And, you know, yeah, he, he's Russian and you're Greek, but you're of the same faith, technically speaking. I mean, you guys should be agreeing on this issue. No, Aristotle just just creates narrative and speculation out of nowhere in this disgusting, slanderous article that just... Uh, you know, attacking not just Ivan, but the Russian church in general, which is the largest Orthodox church in the world and currently under persecution in Ukraine. Well, for those that don't know, Aristotle Papanikolaou is one of the two heads of Fordham Orthodoxy with George Demacopoulos. I, of course, have uh, fun alliterative little uh, names that sound like them, but I'm gonna, I'm, those, those might break terms of service and be rude and crass, so I'm going to leave those not for this episode. But Aristotle and his buddy George, they, of course, are big at the Fordham Orthodox Center in public orthodoxy who published that horrible 
manifesto that we read last week in our show against the idea of the Russian world. So these libtard American Greeks have a pretty big hate boner for Russia because to them, at the end of the day, Russia and Russian orthodoxy represents the vast majority of orthodox lay people. And to them, they realize that means that the vast majority of orthodox lay people are part of an anti-globalist, anti-LGBT institution. And that's not to say that the Russian church defines itself by what it's against. Of course, it defines itself as being the church of Christ. But for Aristotle and George, who are agents of Constantinople, I think it's funny that Dimitri says Goarch being the worst jurisdiction. There's two contenders for worst jurisdiction within Orthodoxy, and it's Goarch, the American Greek Archdiocese, and the Finnish Orthodox Archdiocese, of course, which is also under the Ecumenical Patriarch. <laughs> and so I think the EP shows that with a lot of its tentacles overseas, it, it acts as nothing more than a conduit for the State Department and global neoliberal world values and ultimately ecumenism and all the terrible things that come with this one world religion narrative. And these overeducated and overpaid academics see see nothing wrong with like slandering just an orthodox citizen of their country with 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 this kind of stuff. Publishing in one of the largest largest news organizations that they know is run by non-Christians that they know pushes a narrative against Christianity. But because of that, they know that they'll elevate him as this liberal Christian so that he can get more clicks and downloads and money for his silly foundation that does nothing to do with, that has nothing to do with spreading the gospel. So if you see Aristotle Papanicolaou, George Demacopoulos, or any of their acolytes or fans, you can confidently disregard anything they say. Naturally. And of course, uh, this goes back to the whole EP issue we've been speaking about in a couple episodes. And you may say, well, the ecumenical patriarchate, you, you guys are bashing them quite often. No, we're not. We're simply providing constructive criticism by which we recommend you guys also you know, do your research, you know, look into these matters. It's not We're not simply biased against the ecumenical patriarchate, but we do have to report on things as they come up you know, in the news, throughout history. This is all primary text, all cited, referenced. You can search up any of this and, of course, ask us the questions or even appear in some of our Twitter spaces, which we host about once once a week these days. So you can always come in and ask, actually directly ask us, well, where's the evidence against the you know, ecumenical patriarchate's you know, profound liberal actions in the world? And we'll give you some answers. But it strikes on international politics and in one particular way, Conrad, where essentially you have the ecumenical patriarchate, uh, its base is in Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, the second Roman capital. And... Patriarch Bartholomew and his, his, you know, essentially his cabinet, his synod, they're all housed in Turkey, the citizens of Turkey. And so you have Erdogan on one hand, declaiming he, the Turkish government is pressuring the Greek Orthodox people and the EP directly. But how can you not pressure them if they're literally agents of the State Department? And Erdogan, can you imagine Turkish intelligence literally probably scans all their emails, all their phone calls. They see the, they see the bitcoins coming into the EP accounts. They see all the money transactions. They're like, okay, these guys are on the payroll of Goarch, of the U.S. State Department. They're working with the CIA. <laughs> the CIA imagine the CIA chief comes to Turkey, right? Visits, say, Erdogan's you know, minister of defense and then visits the second leader in Istanbul, you know, the leader of the um, the Greek Orthodox folks abroad. And so you have to consider just the fact that when, when, when we do speak about Turkey bullying or pressuring the Greek Orthodox folks in Istanbul, I'm not defending the bullying and the harassment, but you must consider the fact that the Turks do see the reality of the matter. And the fact of the matter is Patrick Bartholomew and his, uh, you know, his synod, his collection of staff housed in Istanbul, they are agents of the American state, you know, at the end of the day, that's just a de facto, that's just how it is. In a way, it's this uh, just new version of Sergianism, in many ways a lot worse because it's a lot more covert, and also the virtue signaling is a lot more powerful these days. 
Well, and it shows you, I mean, let's be honest here. And there's, and let's, let me first be clear that there are so many, like there's a countless amount of clergy bishops, even within under the ecumenical patriarch that Dimitri and I like love and believe are living saints. Like, I mean, we've cited Father Elpidio, Father Elpidio's Vaginakis. Of course, we've cited Metropolitan Neophytos of Morfu more than anybody else. And he is under a patriarchate where the patriarch, of course, is in love with recognizing the schismatics that we we don't believe this. We're not donatists. We're not saying this affects the grace, perhaps, of people in these in these jurisdictions, unless, of course, you're actually attending the schismatic church in Ukraine. But with all of this, the the Greek archdiocese, especially in the EP itself and the Finar, like the only traditional kind of quote unquote based perspective they hold is like preserving Hellenism and Greek revanchism, which again I'm not against. I'm an Orthodox Christian. I believe that Constantinople is a Greek Orthodox. Orthodox Christian city that Anatolia was fundamentally an Orthodox Greek land, but we live in the world of of geopolitics and 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 and, and warring powers and empires. Where if your only thing that you're standing for is Hellenism and a revanchism for the country that is the enemies of the country in which you preside, then they're going to make that the focus of their persecution of you. And that's not to say that I think it's right. There's all sorts of fantastic work that even Phenariot bishops despite everything going on, have done. But they've to say that they're prioritizing entirely the strict spreading of the gospel, I think, would be a bit naive. Yeah, and I think we'll have uh, David the Real Medwhite on our show, David Erhan, uh, later on in 2023. And, of course, we'll, as a resident of Turkey and as a proud uh, Turkish Orthodox man, he'll probably have some things to say regarding exactly how the gospel is being spread in Turkish around Anatolia and in the ancient homeland of Christianity, essentially, where you get great saints such as St. John Chrysostom are from, you know, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory of Nyssa, you know, Saint, even St. George the Great Martyr. So all of these great saints are from Turkey. Originally, Turkey is one of the heartlands. It, it is like what Ukraine was to Russia. Turkey was essentially to the Roman Empire in terms of Christianity. It is the heartland of Orthodox Christianity. And so we need to just understand that. So Turkey, the reason we speak about it so much is because Turkey is essentially in many geographically it is kind of the center of the world it, it is the place where a lot of fates will change and meet in the future of course you know once we're getting to eschatological uh, matters which maybe we'll discuss on another day but yeah there is that consideration and look the greek orthodox bishops many of them are great there is some great missionary work happening in you know korea japan overseas in even the usa right so let's not deny that some of the uh, good bishops and clergymen of goarch goarch is the american branch of the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, the Ecumenical Patriarch, or the EP, we keep mentioning. But yeah, there is that consideration. And look, we do appreciate the overall efforts, and we cannot ever take that away from all the great clergymen of that jurisdiction. But there is that consideration that, look, uh, you know, there is U.S. state money present, and this is this is undeniable. And to deny this would be to lie, and lying is a sin. So we can't really go ahead with that, right? We can't just see a chief of staff you know, former CIA chief arrive at Istanbul and agree to meet these Greek, uh, you know, hierarchs and kind of not see a pattern here. Yeah, okay. So and end of the day, that has to be the default position and whether or not you skew left or right in terms of your biases, that's besides the point. The facts of the matter are on paper here. Look, the Goarch, Goarch has some, a lot of fantastic institutions and people, of course, directly related to how easy Sid institution is to infiltrate by globalist and Americanist actors. Of course, their monasteries are fantastic. Uh, the, the legacy set by Elder Frem has proved, I believe, impenetrable by the forces of this world, and they have created now well over a dozen bastions of 
beauty and traditional orthodoxy in this in this country that I reside in the United States but outside of that institution and the institution of some good priests and and clergy their main seminary holy cross required the vaccine lp de foros their archbishop speaks at the march for life basically in favor of abortion uh, we see the Order of St. Andrew and the Archons. We see them pushing for everything anti-Russian and more. The Orthodox Times, which is effectively a publication of the Ecumenical Patriarch, receives hundreds of thousands of dollars in grants from the State Department. So if you look at this from an institutional perspective, which is always a perspective that should be taken into account, every institution that perhaps is vulnerable to worldly infiltration has been fully infiltrated within GoArch. So again, this, this we're not making some argument. We're not telling you to leave your Greek church, but it's just important to recognize this, especially when bishops start speaking geopolitically, it's important to recognize kind of where everybody is standing. I would tell everybody, and this is some would say this is controversial, following Metropolitan Neophytos, keeping up with his press office, keeping up with us because we do our best to translate what he says. I think I just view him as such a gift for for stability and for saintly perspective on on ecclesial matters in these days. Yeah, that's right. And I think our perspective, at least me and Conrad, we do agree that, you know, you can actually come to uh, peaceful talks and agreements. We always said, look, if Zelensky actually became an Orthodox Christian, if he actually followed Orthodox Christian traditions of the Ukrainian land, there would be peace in that particular conflict. It would end. But no, it's essentially the tenets of Christianity are denied, are declined and not followed. And so you have these issues arising. And guess what? These traditions and tenets are also denied by some of these clergymen from abroad, people who prefer to side with like American interests or liberalism, marching of BLM, being pro-abortion, doing all this weird stuff, this stuff which has nothing in common with the works of the saints or orthodox traditions in the church and things which me and Conrad tweet about very often and post on our Telegram and you know follow our Substack. We're going to have some articles releasing very soon. And just even commenting on the particular conflict in general in Ukraine, you know, there was these really weird pacifist statements, which I'll be releasing an article quite soon in the next few days about, you know, a pacifism from an orthodox perspective and how unacceptable it is of an ideology and how, what is the actual orthodox perspective on war, on warfare? Like, we will be discussing these issues on our Substack blog, so do follow us and, yeah, stay tuned for some more episodes. Oh yeah, and again, I know we talk a lot about articles that never come out, but I promise you in the next two weeks I will have a follow-up to my Africa Front article, the Africa Front Part 2, a lot of things going on in Africa that I would rather honestly save for the article than even bringing up in this episode. But yeah, it seems like we're getting pretty close to wrapping up. One other thing I briefly wanted to say before we maybe circle back to Ukraine for a minute and then really wrap this thing up was I believe the Church of England, they will be debating whether or not fully integrating like gay marriage into their charter as, you know, legalizing gay marriage, which is a bit of, it's a bit interesting because they already have like weird, like gay and lesbian bishops and stuff, but it's about the, uh, the actual sac- uh, sacrament of marriage within their church. And there are bishops in Anglicanism that are still standing very strongly against it. But in the next month, I believe it's their grand synod will be, will be meeting to establish that, which stark contrast between their grand synod is deciding whether or not, you know, sodomy marriage is okay versus the Grand Synod of my church, the Antiochian Church of North America. We will be deciding, of course, between three very solid bishops between who will be our next metropolitan here. And of course, the Antiochian Church in America is one of the most relevant Orthodox churches, especially in the United States. So keep all of that in prayer. But yeah, with all of that, we are going to really be keeping a close eye on what's going on in Zaporozhye, as well as on the border with Belarus still. And and everything going on, whether it's a strike on Crimea, whether it's pushes in Donbass, the Donetsk shelling, thank God, seems to have abated slightly. It seems that finally the Ukrainians are so have their hands so full, whether it's in the south or whether it's in near on Bakhmut, that they, they've been forced to redirect some of their shelling away from just terrorizing innocent children and 
for the pet that they have for the past eight, nine years in Donetsk. So it's good to see all of that. And Dimitri, unless there's anything you want to say, uh, I'll, I'll show all the socials and then uh, we'll let everybody go. Anything else? Yeah. I just think there's that consideration that we you know, will, the news will be developing. Who knows by this time next week, Zaporozhye may be already surrounded and besieged by Russia or Bakhmut may have fallen. So things will change very quickly. So keep updated on our Twitter, of course, follow the Substacks and, you know, all the social media Conrad will mention in a moment. But yes, again, Donetsk and Lugansk are finally safe, at least for a time being from artillery and shelling. And, you know, this may actually change, unfortunately, if these high Mars do reach the Ukrainian forces in the next month or two, right? So 18 more high Mars, they can fire all the way from the Ukrainian lines and hit Donetsk accurately, you know. It's really unfortunate news that NATO has agreed to pass on all these weapons. I think this is one of the biggest developments of 2023 thus far. So we're going to be we're going to be following all of that and you know exactly what kind of NATO obligations will be moving. And just a prediction: if the Germany does agree to provide Leopard two or um, Leopard two tanks to Ukraine, you know, in the tens if not hundreds, and US begins providing Abrams, we're going to see this war really escalate and kick off. So just a prediction, if that does happen, if Germany and the US do come to this agreement, like the two big the two big boys of NATO, you know, kind of shake hands on this, uh, we're going to see this conflict get really hot on the ground. It's going to enter levels unforeseen prior. So yeah, it's going to be pretty scary if that happens. But until then, um, we are looking at Russian successes continuing on through January, probably into February. No, and this all comes amidst a rapid and extreme de-dollarization, whether it's African countries, India and Russia doing extreme amounts of trade for even energy resources and currencies that aren't dollars. So we're going to be keeping a very close eye on that. But with all that being said, follow us on Substack, subscribe, get your email in there. You'll never miss anything we do. Worldwarnow.substack.com. I recorded earlier this week a great show with our friend Anthony of Westgate, Orthodago on Twitter. He's a great account. I recommend everybody follow him. It's about cosmology, space being fake. So if you're curious about any of that, very, very interesting stuff. I get, I go off. So be prepared for me to just go off on that one on, on, on space and whatnot. So we had a great time. So thank you, Anthony, for that. But yeah, worldwarnow.substack.com. Follow us there. Follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow underscore. Our account grows every day. We get great engagement from you guys. We love reading your comments. Same on Substack. Make a Substack account and engage in the comments. It's become a great forum. We've got some fantastic audience members and fans that know even more about certain prophecies than we do. So don't miss out on the conversations going on in there. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E, at the end of World War Now. Be sure to subscribe to us there. That's our most uncensored, where we can say whatever we want, no matter what. So be sure to subscribe to our Telegram channel. Follow me on Twitter, Gnomrad, Gnomrad, you know, the mythical creature. And subscribe to follow uh, Dimitri, O-Canonist, the Orthodox Canonist himself. And with all of that, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. A lot of things we talked about will be in the link below, as well as our previous episodes will be in the show notes in the description, depending on whether you're watching on Substack or YouTube. And if you're watching on one but don't the other, please subscribe and support us on both, even if you're only listed on one. really helps us out. And with all that being said, pray for peace, pray for the church, pray for the persecutions in Ukraine especially. And with all of that, uh, we'll see you next time. Have a wonderful week. God bless.